I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, as we make our way through this uh, glorious chapter on the topic of the resurrection, we come to verse 35, where Paul makes a slight transition in his thinking. Verse 35, and uh, I'd like to begin reading there down to verse 45. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, we're halfway through the month of November and already Many department stores have come out with their Black Friday ads, and perhaps you've taken a look at those. And perhaps you, like me, like to take advantage of this opportunity where they have great discounts on electronic products in order to upgrade perhaps your smartphone or your television or your game console. But the problem with buying electronic devices is that no matter how new it is when you buy it, in a matter of months, it is already outdated. Perhaps it needs, uh, it needs an upgrade, or they come out with a new device that you think, oh, now I need that one. And of course, that's their marketing technique. That's how it is that Apple and Google and Amazon and all these companies make billions and billions of dollars off us, because we constantly need to get upgraded. But what if I told you that there was an upgrade that you could get that would be a permanent upgrade? You could buy this device and it would never need to be renewed. It would never break. It would never become outmoded, but it would always remain new. Well, that essentially is what the Apostle Paul is telling us in our passage today with regard to our very existence. God has a permanent upgrade planned for us who are united to Christ 
by faith. As he speaks about the, the upgrade that Christ received at the resurrection, that is the one that we can look forward to. And so our passage, as it were, is sort of a Black Friday ad that we can look forward to the day in which Christ will make all things new, especially our bodies and our existence. And so that's where the Apostle Paul begins. As I said, he, he has a slight transition in his thinking in verse 35, because up until this point, he has been, dis- been discussing the fact of the resurrection, the fact that we will at the last day be raised because Christ himself, the first fruits, has already been raised. And he also began to, he was discussing the logical implications of the fact that since Christ has been raised, how ought we then to live? But now he makes a transition from the what to the how. He begins looking, as it were, under the hood, how it is that the dead are raised and in what manner they come. And so he has these two questions. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Very good questions indeed. But you may be shocked at the Apostle Paul's initial answer. It seems like he's being kind of rude. He's insulting his audience. Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing. What he's doing when he asks these two questions, which are on the surface good questions, what he's doing is he's anticipating a skeptic's objection. And so these are not, at least initially, honest, sincere questions. Well, how are the dead raised? No, they are skeptical reactions. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? You see, people living in the first century were just as skeptical as people today We all know that when you die, you stay dead, and the idea or concept of a resurrection is unbelievable for many today. And so it was in Paul's day, as he anticipates these objections, first of all, the plausibility of the resurrection. How on earth can somebody who died, whose body ultimately dissolves and turns into carbon that turns into other living life forces, how can that possibly be raised at the last day? Not only the plausibility, but even the way in which it happens. Well, as I said, Paul, when he replies in verse 36, saying, you foolish person, he's not being rude or mean-spirited. A fool literally is one who lives and acts as if there is no God. Psalm 14 tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so whether he intellectually believes that or practically lives that way, the person who denies the resurrection is ignorant of God and of his power. Paul already said that back in verse 34. Some of you have no knowledge of God, and I say that to your shame. This is similar to what Jesus told the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees who denied the resurrection when they asked this silly question of him trying to show how how implausible a resurrection would be. Jesus says, this is why you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, you don't know the God of scripture who is able to do things that may seem implausible to us. But it's interesting that while, whereas Jesus pointed the Sadducees to scripture and how it is that God has revealed himself in his word, the Apostle Paul here in our passage points us not to scripture, but to creation itself to show how God has revealed himself even in the created order. He uses an example from plant life. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, boys and girls, 
perhaps you have planted a seed before. And you know that when you plant a seed in the ground, it's like you're having a little mini funeral for that seed. You dig, you dig a plot, dig a little hole, you plant the seed, and you bury it. It's like you're putting it, it's, it's like it's dead and you put it in the ground. But what happens when that seed begins to decompose, when the outer husk of the seed breaks down? Well, you have new life that sprouts forth. And if you water the seed and you give it enough time, that seed will sprout and turn into a beautiful plant. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying it, you can't have life unless the seed dies. And then drawing another point from the same illustration, what you sow, that little tiny seed that you put in the ground, is not what springs forth, but something that appears to be completely different. You see, the Apostle Paul highlights the fact that although it's the same thing, what comes out appears to be completely different. You see, the Those people who were denying the resurrection in Corinth must have had a very crass idea or concept of the resurrection. They were thinking that the very same body that you laid into the ground was going to come out in the very same way. But that's not, that's not what scripture teaches. We're not going to be like zombies coming out of the ground, but what's going to happen is there's going to be a radical change. In the same way that a seed changes into a fruit-bearing plant, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And so there's both continuity, it's the same thing that goes into the ground that comes out of the ground, but also radical discontinuity because what comes out is infinitely greater. And it's God who gives it the body. So again, pointing to the idea of God as creator, while we simply plant and water the seed, it is God in his infinite wisdom and infinite resourcefulness who gives the increase and allows a beautiful fruit-bearing plant to come forth. But each gets its own body. Again, here we see, as we saw back in chapter 12, when the Apostle Paul was talking about spiritual gifts and how although there's one spirit in one body, there's a great diversity of gifts. So it is with the created order. God loves diversity. He didn't create just one kind of plant. Imagine that, boys and girls. If you only have one type of fruit or one type of vegetable that you have to eat for the rest of your life, well, no, that would be terrible. You see, God loves diversity. And and we see that in the created order. As he said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and so it was. We see diversity in plant life. We also see diversity in the animal kingdom, as the Apostle Paul shifts now from the plant kingdom to the animal kingdom, and he again elaborates on the the diversity we see in life on earth. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul is summarizing Genesis chapter 1 in reverse beginning with the creation of man and then with the animals, the land animals, and then the, the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, he highlights the fact that, that while each and every one of these creatures and species has their own glory, it's a distinct glory. They're of different kinds. A, a leopard has a diff, different skin than a human, and, and a human has different skin than a, than a bird of the air. And yet God is the creator of all these things, and he has been pleased to give each 
their own distinct body. Well, not only is that the case here on earth, but it's also the case in heaven as we turn our attention to the heavens, the skies, uh, what Paul calls the heavenly bodies, referring to the sun, the moon, and the stars. Each of these things, the, the great light and the lesser light, uh, to rule the day, the day and the night, as we read in Genesis 1, each and every one of those things all possess glory, but they, own, they possess their own distinct glory that vary. They, do, they, they vary from one degree of glory to another. Well, now the Apostle Paul, in verse 42, applies his illustration. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Taking this illustration from the created order of diversity that God has bestowed upon his creation with varying degrees of glory, so it is with our resurrection. If God is pleased to create a diverse world with a variety of creatures, both great and small, is he not also capable of transforming our lowly bodies into the glorious bodies that would be suited for dwelling in his presence? That's what Paul's thinking is here as he begins to show how it's actually completely plausible that God will raise us up at the last day. And so he begins a a series of contrasts beginning in verse 42 of our present illustration, sorry, our present current existence with the existence that we can expect at the future resurrection. Going back to that plant illustration, he speaks of our bodies now as a seed that is planted, which one day will spring forth at the resurrection. He says, first of all, what is sown is perishable. I think the King James has it a bit better when it says what is sown, it's sown in corruption. You see, when Adam was created in the beginning, he was created in a way that he was able to to sin, but also able not to sin. And depending on how he lived his life, he had the promise of life or he had the promise of death. So in that sense, we could say that Adam in the beginning was corruptible because he had the choice of either sinning or not sinning. But as a result of the fall, both Adam as well as all of us who who come from him naturally, we are totally corrupt in body and in soul. We're prone to decay and ultimately the destruction of death. As soon as we're born, we begin dying. And since life is a constant death, in one sense, we aren't even really living. We're just dying right now. That's because we're corrupted. We're corruptible. And we are corrupted. And at the last day, once we succumb to death, we are in total corruption. And yet, when we are raised, Paul says we will be raised incorruptible. Not just immortal, not just a constant static state of existence, but one, an existence that is confirmed in holiness and in life, no longer prone to change or reversal. You see, sometimes our life is good, but sometimes it's bad. And even when things are going good, we know that it's just a matter of time before things get worse. But that's not how it is in the resurrection state. 
We will have that fullness of life, confirmed in holiness, never having to worry about things, uh, our, our life falling apart. Well, likewise, in verse 43, Paul says, we're sown in dishonor. See, there's nothing dignifying about death. We do our best to honor our loved ones who are deceased. We uh, uh, maybe buy a, a beautiful casket. We, we pick out, select a, a plot of land that has a beautiful view. But, beloved Lord, there is no amount of makeup that a mortician can apply, no amount of formaldehyde that can mask the stench of death, that can hide the fact that, once, that what was once a living body is now a corpse. This is the dishonor that awaits us all as our bodies succumb to the enemy, death. But that's not the end for the believer. Even though it's sown in dishonor, it will be raised in glory. And here Paul speaks of a glory and honor that is far greater than anything that could be bestowed in this earthly life. You see, what we look forward to, our blessed hope, is to be glorified together with Christ, to share in the glory that he has earned. That's what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, that when Christ appears, then we also will, will appear with him in glory. Likewise, in Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Well, he goes on with this contrast when he says it's sown in weakness. It's interesting, for all of our medical and technological advancements, we still remain powerless against the finality and inevitability of death. Our present existence is characterized by weakness, and yet when we are raised, we will be raised in power, in power. Paul's already spoken quite a bit about power. He says that the kingdom of God is not consistent words, but in power. And he's already told us how it is that the, that the preaching of the gospel, the message of the cross, is the power of God unto salvation. But you see, that same power that creates faith in our hearts at the beginning of our Christian walk and sustains us through our lives is the same power that will give life to our mortal bodies. As Paul previously said in chapter 6, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And we know that this, is not, this power is not just some impersonal force, but this power is brought to us through a person. And that person is the Holy Spirit. We know that from Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I like to think of the Holy Spirit as the executive branch of the Holy Trinity. He's the one who gets things done. He is the power of God. And it is the Holy Spirit who dwells in you now, but also will give life to your body at the last day. And I think that sheds light on the final contrast that Paul has in verse 44, when he says that it is sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. Let's think quickly about what he means by natural body. The word here in Greek is a bit difficult to convey in English because we don't have a direct English word that corresponds to it. 
I suppose natural is probably the best translation that you can come up with. Probably the worst translation would be physical. If any of your Bibles say it's sown a physical body, you could just mark that out and write natural because that's not the word that Paul uses. That's not what he's contrasting here. He's not contrasting our physical existence with, uh, with an immaterial existence at the last day. No. What he's describing here when he says that we are sown a natural body is he's describing the type of existence that we presently have from our forefather, Adam. That word natural body is related to the Greek word in verse 45 when Paul says that Adam became a living being. A living being. And so Adam's existence is our existence. It's a natural existence that's suited for existence here on earth. An earthly existence. That's the type of body we have now. And that's the type of body that is laid into the grave. See, Paul's already used this word natural back in chapter 2 when he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If there the Apostle Paul described the limits of the natural human mind to understand and receive the things of God as they have been revealed in Christ... Here, he's describing, he's explaining the limits of our very existence to enter into heaven itself. See, boys and girls, if you got in a spaceship and you flew to the moon and you got out of that spaceship, you would need a spacesuit. You would need a spacesuit or else you would die. Well, we, in our present existence, we are suited to live here on earth. But you see, Paul's telling us something very important. In order to dwell in heaven, we need to be changed. Our present existence needs to be upgraded to the next level to dwell with God. And so that's why Paul goes on to say it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, this might cause us a little consternation because when we think of spiritual, we think of immaterial, that is not physical. And yet when we think of a body, we think of something that is solidly physical. And so it's important to note here that the Apostle Paul is not using an oxymoron. He's not saying uh, spiritual in the sense of immaterial body. We know that our glorified bodies will be physical. They'll be more than physical, but certainly not less than. When Jesus appeared to his disciples in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection, and they thought they saw a ghost, Jesus says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And so clearly Jesus, the first fruits, his resurrection body was solidly physical. And just to prove it, he says, hey, have you got anything to eat? So it is with our bodies. Our resurrection bodies will be physical, and yet how can they also be spiritual? Well, I think the way to understand this properly is to capitalize the S. When it says spiritual bodies, that S should be capitalized, that is, referring to the Holy Spirit. 
our bodies will be spiritual because they will be raised, filled, led, empowered, governed, and in any other way possible, characterized by the Holy Spirit. We will have Holy Spirit bodies at the last day because the Spirit will raise us, fill us, indwell us, govern us, and characterize their bodies. Jesus talked about this type of existence when he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And, and he says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says he was talking about the Holy Spirit there. I don't know about you, but I don't have rivers of living water flowing out of me yet. You see, while we presently have a foretaste of the Spirit who serves as an earnest, as a down payment that we will be redeemed, as we saw in Ephesians 4, he is the seal of our redemption, we still groan inwardly, awaiting for the transformation of our bodies and the full experience of the Holy Spirit dwelling us. We await the day in which we will be transformed from a natural body to a holy spiritual body. And it's interesting how the Apostle Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. See, based upon God's infinite wisdom and resourcefulness, based upon the way he has revealed himself to us now in his present creation of diversity and different levels of glory, the Apostle Paul can confidently assert that our natural present existence presupposes that there will be a spiritual existence which is to come. If there's a level one, there must be a level two. There must be a final phase of our existence. And Paul proves that by quoting from Scripture. In verse 45, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it speaks of the creation of man. Boys and girls, you know the story that God in the beginning created Adam out of the dust of the ground and he formed him out of the dust and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And when he did that, we read that the first man, Adam, became a living being. That man of dust became a living creature in the face of God, capable and able to perform all the duties that God required of him and to render thanks unto God for all of the blessings. That's, what, that's what's being described there in Genesis 2-7. That's where Adam got his natural existence suited to an earthly dwelling. And although much has changed from Adam's original state of integrity for he was very good and righteous, to our present fallen and corrupt state, we still possess basically that same natural body, that same fundamental type of existence that Adam had in the beginning, a natural earthly existence. And so what we're looking forward to is the upgrade. And that upgrade has already come to our Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul terms the last Adam. Here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he adds to Scripture. He quotes from Genesis 2, and he adds another line. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, Paul has already compared and contrasted Jesus and Adam earlier in the chapter, back in 22. He says, for as 
through a man came death, so also through a man comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Very similar to what he does in Romans chapter 5, where he compares the first Adam with the second Adam. Now, if, if Paul has been describing, or if, if Paul in those places compared and contrasted the first Adam with the second Adam, he did it, his comparison but was by way of what they did and their direct implications for us. The one man's obedience, or sorry, disobedience brought death. The one man's obedience brought life. If in those places Paul contrasted what they did, here he contrasts who they are in terms of their very nature and their existence. Adam has an earthly, natural existence. The last Adam has a spiritual, heavenly existence. You see, Jesus is not only the second Adam, but he is the last Adam because he completes God's original plan for humanity. He takes our present existence to the next level as a foretaste of what we can all await at the last day. And whereas Adam became a living being, Christ is a life-giving being. Whereas Adam was just living, Jesus is life-giving. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And later on, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, Jesus now is life-giving and he is life-giving because, once again, of the Holy Spirit. Here again, I think that word, the, the, the S in spirit, should be capitalized. Jesus became a life-giving spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, the, the Lord and giver of life. Not that the Son becomes the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is not saying that the two members of the Holy Trinity merge into one. No, he's not talking about their personal being. He's talking about their mission. And he's talking about Jesus' current state of existence being a spiritual body. One that is characterized by the Holy Spirit in every way. One who is given the Spirit without measure. One who now has life in himself and is able to bestow that eternal life upon all who call upon him. And so now, the humanity of Jesus is fully united with the Holy Spirit, and now Christ, our mediator, the last Adam, is able to bestow life upon all of us. Well, you may ask, well, when did that happen? In the same way that Adam became a living being when God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, when did Jesus become a life-giving spirit? Well, of course, that was at his resurrection. When he was raised incorruptible, he became that life-giving spirit, and now he is the Lord and giver of life who bestows life upon all who call upon him. As we said before, if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. This is what we get to look forward to. This is the type of existence that awaits us at the last day. And so in conclusion... If you're sitting here today, and as I read the, these, these really ugly words describing our present existence, our, our natural bodies, corruptible, corrupt, weakness, dishonor, you may think, well, yeah, that about sums it up. 
Maybe you struggle with your health. Maybe you have mental health issues. Maybe you struggle with depression or you have financial difficulties. Maybe you think this life, this existence is not what I would like it to be. Well, that's the point. God has a better existence for you in mind. A spiritual, incorruptible existence that is that is, uh, shares in the glory that Christ has earned for us. And that's what we have to look forward to when Christ returns. And so as we inwardly groan through the power of the Holy Spirit, we await the day of the redemption of our bodies. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, to experience the weakness and frailties that we all have, becoming like us in every respect and yet without sin. And you even succumb to death itself for us and for our salvation so that you may obtain for us that eternal life. And you have now been glorified and become the life-giving spirit so that you may bestow eternal life upon all who call upon you and no one will snatch us out of your hand. So we pray, Lord, that you would sustain us through our present existence, our existence that is characterized by corruption and weakness and dishonor and, and, and cause us to grow in our hope in the day in which you will come and make all things new. And so we do pray that you would hasten the day of your return. And we ask this in your name. Amen.